Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to continue what we started uh, a few weeks ago, a couple weeks ago now. I apologize for not being here last week. I had the junk. I'm glad to be back with you. A couple weeks ago, we started a series of sermons based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 and following, talking about spiritual warfare. And this week, I was reading about some warfare tactics. And one of the things that have, has, uh, one of those tactics that has always fascinated me is the, uh, those that would parachute into the battlefield. <clears throat> Anybody here ever jumped out of a plane? Anybody? A couple of people? I haven't. Anybody here want to jump out of a plane? Here's the thing. I've always said I thought I'd want to jump out of a plane, and I think I would really believe that until the moment came to actually jump out of the plane, right? Well, as time began to, to move on in military circles and they were parachuting guys in, it was a pretty effective tactic until radar got to the point that they could detect the planes and they would begin to fire at those that had jumped out of the planes. Now, parachuting out of a plane in itself is dangerous enough. You can only imagine what it's like when you're parachuting and people are firing at you while you're parachuting. So they developed this new uh, kind of thing, and I was talking to somebody after the first service, and in Vietnam they had this, they kind of started it, I think, around that time. But it was a, uh, it's what they call HALO. HALO stands for High Altitude Low Opening. Now, to take that to, you understand, high altitude means that they would have the plane climb to 25,000 up to 40,000 feet, just out of range of radars where they could get above them, and then somebody would jump out of the plane and immediately start to descend. They would reach speeds of between 120 and 200 miles per hour, free-falling. Now, the high altitude is kind of self-explanatory. Anybody want to guess what the low opening stands for? That means you open the chute as close to the ground as you possibly can. The whole goal is to open it just at the moment where it will break your fall enough that it won't break anything else. So about 1,800 feet, they pull the chute. Halo jumpers have a motto. They say, if you live, you get to fight. Kind of encouraging, right? I was reading this week in a book by Erwin McManus called The Barbarian Way, uh, a story where he compares us to halo jumpers. And he said, here's the thing. In John chapter 3, you know that famous uh, conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus, and they're talking through all that. In John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Now, we use that phrase born again all the time, and I hate to kind of squash some things here, but that's not the best translation of the words there. The best translation of those words is that they are born from above. And Erwin McManus in his book, A Barbarian Way, basically says, it is as if when you accept Jesus Christ, you are born from above and dropped in the middle of a war zone. Now, we talked a couple of weeks ago about some of the basic truths about spiritual warfare that we found in the first part of this passage in Ephesians chapter 6. And those simply were that we are surrounded by an invisible world, that in that invisible world impacting our physical world is a war of intense fury that we are all a part of. They have an intimidating but not 
overly intimidating enemy that we must respect but not fear, and that when we fight, we fight from victory, not for it. Today, we're going to begin the process of how do we engage, how do we protect, how do we prepare ourselves for this battle. J.I. Packer has reminded us that even if you don't realize you're in a battle as a believer of God, you are. It says opposition is a fact. The Christian who is not conscious of being opposed had better watch himself, for he is in danger. Ephesians chapter 6. I'm going to start in verse 10 again. We're really going to focus on verse 13 through 15, but we're going to start in verse 10 again. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. A few things that I want to point out today just as we walk through this in my slightly longer than five-minute sermon that Richard predicted. First of all this, we've got to learn to stand firm. The phrase that's used over and over in this passage is that we must learn to stand firm. You can see it throughout the passage. It's kind of the thing that is over and over said. And we have to understand that the Scripture doesn't teach us to move forward. It teaches us to stand firm. It tells us not to retreat, not to turn around, not to go to the side, but to stand firm. See, Satan is not just this idea out there. Satan is real. And he's not just a perpetrator of evil that's around doing bad things. He is someone that has as our, as his goal our destruction Moving us off of God's plan. He intends to move us away from what God wants us to do any way that he can. It's interesting that the scripture uses the phrase, stand firm. Because what it really means is that we have already been handed this victory. You know, the song that we've sung during this series that we just sang, that shout out with a voice of triumph. The idea is that God has already won the victory. It's not in doubt. It's not worried about. God has won it. And so we're not trying to gain new ground. We're not out there trying to plant God's flag in a new place. What we're doing is trying to remain where we are, standing firm in what God has already done. We were sitting around the other day, and uh, um, we were talking about Madeline and the differences, and somebody was asking us the differences between Madeline as a girl and boys. And, you know, right now, except for the clothes she wears, there's not a whole lot. I mean, she, she sleeps and she eats and she burps and she poops and she, you know, I won't ever talk about her again like that, all right? But she's similar. I said, now, what's really going to be different is when she gets older, I'm not going to know how to play with her like I've played with the boys. You see, with the boys, playing is very easy. Their favorite game is a game called Knock Daddy Down. Right? And all that that game involves is me sitting in the middle of the floor, them getting as far as they can at the other wall, running full speed and attempting to knock me down. Right? 
And so I stand there. I wait for them. I get ready. They get their full steam. They come running full force. They bury their shoulder, and they go straight into me. And my job is to stand firm. It was much easier when they were younger. Right? The older they get, the harder it becomes. But the point of that is that just like that, that we as a Christian in this world are playing a game of stand firm. We must learn to do that. Four times in this passage, he talks about standing. In verse 11, he talks about standing. Verse 13, he talks about standing twice. In verse 14, he tells us to stand firm then. There are a couple of ways that we can learn to stand firm. And the first is this. If we're going to stand firm, we must learn to realize urgency. He says here in verse 13, He says, put on the full armor of God. When you read this entire passage, there's no way to to interpret this, to think about it in a casual way. It is a serious, urgent matter. Paul wants us to understand that there is urgency in our preparation. In fact, when he says put on the full armor, what he says in that word, just that simple word put, is that as much as you can, as quickly as you can, immediately make sure you have God's armor equipped on your life. The idea really is that we never know when the most difficult days are coming, and whenever they come, we've got to be prepared. It says in there even that we must be willing or, or have it on there so that when we can, when the day of evil comes, we may be able to stand our ground. The way I think about this is, is this. When Jesus was tempted in the wilderness... He was tempted three different times. And it says that when he passed the third temptation, when he made it through that, it says Satan, the adversary, the enemy, left him and waited for a more opportune time. Now, we know throughout the rest of his life, Jesus had moments of victory and celebration, but we also know he had moments of sadness and difficulty. And this is what I thought about this week. If Jesus had more opportune times for temptation, don't you think you and I do as well? We do. And Satan will wait for an opportune time. And here's the thing. You can't wait until it comes and then go, uh-oh, i got to get prepared. i got to get everything together. i got to get my life on track. You've got to be ready before it comes. You've got to realize the urgency. And here's the second thing out of this. You've got to put on the full armor full armor. You see, the reason we need the full armor on is because, like I said, we don't know when that day is going to come. The truth is that most of the time, the difficult days in our lives when we need to be prepared come completely unexpectedly. How many of you have ever been just having a normal day, things going well, sun outside, everything's great, and boom, in the middle of it, you get a phone call, you get a text, you get an email, you get to see somebody, you get something at work, and suddenly your day is shot. Anybody ever been there? Yeah. It happens all the time. And the thing is that when we get there, we can't take the time to think, uh-oh, I've got to get prepared. We've got to be prepared. We put on the full armor. Wherever it talks about putting on the armor of God, it talks about putting on the full armor of God. It's a picture of a powerful Roman soldier and his armor. Now, let me just say this. It is a metaphor. And metaphors convey truth, but you can't take them too far. 
okay? And I believe that the armor is something not that you can get up in the morning and put on piece by piece before you start your day. It is part of the life that you live that prepares you. The key thing is you can't pick and choose what you like. I was thinking this week about when Eli first started riding a bike. We went to Walmart. We picked out this really cool, huffy bike, red flames on the side, training wheels, top of the line, just for him. To go along with it, you had to have a red matching helmet, right? Can't ride a bike without a helmet. Everybody wear your helmet when you ride your bikes, all right? So we go and we get the bike, we get the helmet, we get it home. We're excited. It's a spring day. It's a nice day. Thinking, great, this is the time we're going to try and get him all together. We'll get him out there. We get the helmet open, and inside the helmet is not only a helmet, but there are knee pads and elbow pads, all right? Um, so we begin to get him prepared. I, I get the wrench out. I make sure the training wheels are on right. And they're tightened and everything's good there. We get uh, the helmet. We strap it. We get it adjusted. We get out the knee pads. We strap the knee pads around. We get all that together. He's beginning to look like a hockey player out there instead of somebody riding the bike. And we get to the part where we get the elbow pads, and we just say, we're not going to ride a bike today if we don't get going. Right? I mean, we've been out here 20 minutes. You ever been around a three-year-old for 20 minutes? They move on quickly to other things. And so we say, what? what's the worst going to happen? Stick him up on the bike. So we put him up on the bike. He sits down on the seat at the house we were living at the time. Had a kind of a gradual incline, not like our house now, but it was an incline. And so we get him on the side. And the whole plan all along was for me to walk alongside of him and just kind of let him get his feel, get the wheels going, all that kind of stuff. Well, as I turn my head for just a moment, he starts down the hill. Now I'm a step behind. And so I take two quick steps to try to catch him, and I grab one handlebar. Now, when you grab one handlebar, it swerves, right? And I kind of grabbed it, not pulling it back, but kind of grabbed it pushing forward, so it swerved away from me into my car that was sitting there. So we hit the car. Eli topples off of the bike and lands, guess where, on his elbow. And then I picked up my devotional for that day, and it said, put on the full elbow and knee pads of the bicycle. No, it said, put on the full armor of God. But the point is, you've got to have it all on. And the truth is, Satan and his demons know our weaknesses. And if you don't cover those areas, that's where they'll attack. So let's talk about for a moment this morning three pieces of armor. We're going to do this quickly, all right? And what it tells us that we need to understand. First of all, if we're going to have the full armor of God, be prepared for that day, ready for whatever may come, we must learn to recognize false intelligence. Okay? Verse 14. Stand firm then. You see that still there? That stand firm. Don't give ground. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist. The key to any battle is knowing what the situation really is in life. I was watching some of the coverage over the holidays of the, of the uh, guy that attempted to set off the bomb uh, going into Detroit on the plane. And, you know, there are all these questions out there about, well, why didn't they recognize it? Why didn't the intelligence agencies know this guy? Why was he not stopped? He was the only watch, all that stuff. And I was listening to some of that coverage when they talked about that they get 
millions of bits of information every week. And the hardest thing about being in the intelligence community is sorting out what's real from what's false. And the truth is, one of the most difficult things about living our lives as believers in Jesus Christ is figuring out in our lives what is truth and what is deception. Now this belt on the Roman soldier was one of the most important pieces of equipment they had. It held everything up. They put their sword, they put their shield on it. We'll talk about those next week. They were prepared for battle. In fact, if you were someone that if you were somebody that got ready to go to war and you didn't have your belt on, you were severely punished. Now here's part of the reason. In those days, Roman soldiers, men in general, wore tunics, right? And what do tunics look like? Dresses, all right? We don't wear tunics today. At least most of us don't, all right? And so when they weren't in battle, things weren't going on, they could wear the tunic and it would flow to the ground. They could have their belt unstrapped. But when they got prepared for battle, they would strap the belt on and they would tuck the tunic inside of the belt so that when they were ready, they could run. Okay? Now, I've never tried to run in a skirt, all right? And I don't want to. But from what I hear, it's difficult. And so they would tuck it, and that would make them prepared. What Paul basically is saying is, make sure that you're constantly prepared, ready to go. And he says, the thing that will be the belt that will hold everything together and help to get you prepared is truth. Now, there's a couple of ways that it means it here. And first of all, it means this. It means the truth about God that is absolute truth. And part of the way you prepare yourself for whatever deception might be out there is to know what God says about you, about God, and about others. One of the ways that Satan will often attempt to get us off track is to make us believe things about ourselves that are not true. To make us believe things about God that are not true. And to make us think things about others that are not true. We often go back to Genesis 3 with the first um, fall of man. But in that first fall, Satan used deception. He said, did God really say that? That's, that's, surely that's not what he... Well, well, if he said it, he didn't mean it. You, you don't think that'll actually happen. And he got them to doubt God's truth. In your life, when things come up, is that really what the Bible says? I mean, but surely it means something different there. Well, I know that's what you've been taught, but that can't be true. It's interesting, even on Wednesday nights, as we're reading through the Bible together and we've gathered, and if you're not with us on Wednesday nights, you're missing a blessing. It's just a lot of fun. We have a lot of good times talking about the Bible and everything that was there. It's interesting how even on Wednesday night, we're reading some things during the week, and we're like, now, now wait a minute, I, is that true? And Satan will get you to try to believe it. Now, here's the thing. The only way to combat deception is to know God's truth. That's it. Now, there are lots of ways to know God's truth. The best way is reading His Word. The best way on top of that is singing about Him and understanding from great teachers about Him. It's putting things into your life that teach God's truth. Sometimes... Um, Young adults, teenagers, 
Others will ask me, what do you think about watching like R-rated movies or TV that, you know, maybe not be uh, suitable that you would think? And here's my thing. All that stuff won't make any difference in your life if you're grounded in God's truth. The problem is we live in a world where we watch and listen to that stuff more than we ground ourselves in God's truth. And we begin to believe the lies that are out there instead of the truth that God proclaims. I'm not saying that all that stuff's bad. I mean, like I said, if you're grounded in God's truth, it can be helpful in understanding what the world's going through. But you've got to be grounded in God's truth. Now, it doesn't just mean knowing God's truth intellectually. It means living it out, being an honest person. But being an honest person doesn't just mean just telling the truth. What I mean there is being honest with yourself, taking personal responsibility when personal responsibility is required. It means making sure your motives are right and pure and true. It means making sure that sin in your life is confessed to God, that you keep short accounts with Him. It means living transparently before the Lord. First thing we got to do is we got to recognize false intelligence. Here's the second thing. We got to guard our hearts. It says that once you have the belt of truth wrapped around you, then the second thing is you must make sure that you have the breastplate of righteousness in place. Now, breastplate is one of those things that most people kind of get the idea of what it is. It goes over the torso. It was often leather covered with metal or with animal bones, and it was there particularly to protect the most vital organs that you have. It was the last line of defense between you and death. And so it was something important for these guys, and it's important for us. Now, we have to understand that the righteousness that it's talking about here, that there's this breastplate that guards us, that protects us, is not primarily our righteousness. It's not self-righteousness. It's what we call imputed righteousness. Say that word with me. Imputed. Imputed. Nobody said it. What happened there? David, you say it. I got you. Thanks, David. I appreciate it. I saw somebody go, hmm. All right. Imputed. Are you ready? One. I'm going to make sure we say it. One, two, three. Imputed. All right. Tomorrow when you go to work, I want you to find a way to use imputed in a conversation. All right. Now, imputed, this is what it means. Imputed righteousness means righteousness that is given even though you don't deserve it or earn it. It means what's given to you. And what this righteousness means is that when we accept the Lord Jesus as our Savior, that He covers us with His righteousness, not ours. Now, this is important. Because when Satan cannot deceive you, he will attempt to condemn you. And let me just tell you real quickly a test you can do to see if what's happening in your mind is conviction over a sin or if it's guilt and condemnation from the enemy. When you sin, the Holy Spirit will convict you about the act you did. Satan will make you think you're a terrible person. There's a difference. Just because you make a mistake does not mean that you're automatically the worst person in the world. Although we can think that. Immediately our mind goes to this thing of, God, I can't believe I messed up again. I can't believe I did that again. I, I must not be what I'm supposed to be. I'm a terrible person. I'm horrible. I don't know anybody who will be my friend. I don't know anybody who will be my uh, co-worker. I don't know anybody who will be my family. I don't know anybody who will be married to me. I don't understand why anybody would care about me. 
You begin to have one of those, it's my party and I'll cry if I want to moments, all right? And you just beat yourself up. And yet at the same time, we must remember that because of what God has done, He tells us that we are valuable, that we are His. In the New Testament alone, it tells us that we are God's children, that we are friends of Jesus, that we have been justified, that we are one with Him in the Spirit, that we have been paid I have been bought with the price and belong to God, that we are a member of Christ's body, that He had been chosen us and adopted us, that we have been redeemed and forgiven of all our sins, that we are complete in Him and that we have direct access to the throne of Christ. It tells us all those things so that when condemnation comes, we can say, there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Let me tell you this. I'm going to speak primarily to young people for a minute, okay? Because when I was growing up, this is where I struggled the most. I was in the youth group. I was a good kid. I was kind of the leader. And I still messed up. And when I messed up, I immediately thought how terrible I am. God doesn't want you to know that or think that. He cares for all of you. And what He desires is for you to confess that and move on. I saw, we started, when I, my youth group started in my grade, we had 33 people in my grade going to a church that ran about 400, about what we run. 33 in one grade. By the time I got to my senior year, there were four of us faithful. And what I saw over and over again was not that anything catastrophic. It was they would make a mistake, and then they would think nobody at church will care for me anymore. Or they're all going to turn their backs on me. It wasn't true. And they just leave. Some of you adults, maybe there was a time in your life when you walked away from what's going on at church. And maybe it had to do with that, that you did something and you were worried about what the church would think or what your friends would think or what your family would think, and you walked away. The breastplate of righteousness is symbolic of the covering that Christ has done in our lives. Now, let me say this. Not only does it have an imputed sense, it has a practical sense. And that means that you and I are to attempt to live out every day because of what Christ has done his glory in our lives. We're supposed to obey what He asks us to do. That means that we don't give in to sin. That means that we have a problem with sin. That means that we love the things God loves and we hate the things God hates. I was uh, fortunate enough in my studies to do a, uh, a study on a guy named Billy Sunday. Billy Sunday was one of the great revival preachers of the early 20th century. Uh, he was kind of the forerunner of the guy who was the forerunner of Billy Graham. Okay? And Billy Sunday, one of the interesting things about Billy Sunday is that when he was growing up, he was a baseball player. In fact, he played professional baseball and was considered one of the best professional baseball players. He got saved by playing baseball, and he went to be a preacher. Billy Sunday was known for doing crazy things. He would have these huge um, revivals, have thousands of people there in Nashville or New York or any of those kind of places. He would do this huge thing. And Billy would make the stage a platform where he would perform while he preached. Because of his baseball background, he would talk about sliding into home, and he would slide on stage. He would talk about throwing things at Satan, and he would wind up and throw things. I can't believe preachers would do stuff like that, but that's what I hear, all right? Billy Sunday once said this about sin, and I love it. He said, listen, I'm against sin. I'll kick it as long as I've got a foot. I'll fight it as long as I've got a fist. I'll butt it as long as I've got a head. I'll bite it as long as I've got a tooth. And when I'm old, fistless, 
footless and toothless. I'll gum it till I go home to glory, and it goes to perdition. It's his attitude of sin. Pretty good, right? It's always good when a preacher starts out with, I don't like sin. That's kind of a good thing. But here's the thing. We've got to learn how to guard our hearts better. To the accusations and the problems that people bring against us. To the lifestyle that we're living on a daily basis. Satan cannot thwart the plan of God in a person who is living righteously before him. Here's the last thing. We've got to know our history. So he talks about the the belt. He talks about the breastplate. And then he does this kind of strange thing in verse 15. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now, so there's not even a piece of the armor mentioned there. But the idea is, the understood there is, that he's talking about the shoes that they wore. Alexander the Great is the one that kind of thought of this supposedly. But, but they used to wrap their shoes all the way up to their knees. They would have those leather straps all the way around. And on the bottom of the shoes would be spikes, nails, or animal bones. All right? Now, what does that kind of sound like to you? Cleats, right? And so they were the forerunners of cleats. Now, the reason that was important was because they often fought on land that it was hard to stand firm in. And when you had those feet on, you could dig in and literally stand firm. We're going to talk next week about the shield. We're going to talk about the sword. We're going to talk about all that. But when you would stand firm, you were able to dig your heels in literally and stand. Now, it says here that that is related to the gospel. And if it's the belt that protects us against deception, if it's the breastplate that protects us against condemnation, then these shoes that are fitted with the gospel is what protects us against doubt. You see, what he's saying there is, you've got to know the full story of who God is, what he's done for you, and when you are secure in who you are in Christ, it gives you the foot to stand where you're supposed to be. When I was growing up, especially my younger years, I was one of those kids that doubted my salvation a lot. I mean, I can tell you today where I was when I accepted the Lord. I can remember the story. I can't tell you the exact date. I can tell you how old I was. I was nine years old. I can tell you where I was sitting in the church. And I can tell you the experience. I'm not one of those guys that thinks you've got to have the date down, but you ought to know the kind of the experience of when God began to transform you. Okay? And so that happened, and I remember that. But then over and over again in my life, I would just doubt. I mean, am I saved? I don't know that I'm even saved. And I would pray about it. And I, I remember many nights I would pray this prayer. Literally, I would lay in bed. Um, I had a little trouble getting to sleep when I was a kid. I, I would stay up. I just couldn't sleep. I'd lay in the bed, and I just couldn't sleep. Now, I, I'm looking not, let me say, I'm not looking forward to the day my kids repeat my mistake there, all right? I just couldn't go to sleep. I remember in particular one time my mom and dad decided they were going to get me to sleep, whatever. I drank warm milk before I went to bed. I turned off all everything before I went to bed. Then they put on soft music as I laid in bed. And dad said, I'm going to come lay beside you so you'll go to bed. You'll get calm. And I remember my dad was asleep in about five minutes and snoring, and it didn't help me one bit. On the radio station, when you used to in Dyersburg on WASL, Dyersburg's hit radio, they used to uh, go off at midnight. They didn't run on all night. And so at midnight, they would play the national anthem, and then it would go to static. And I remember many nights laying in that bed and hearing that go to the national anthem, and it go to static, and then I'm just there alone with my thoughts wide awake. And many nights I prayed this prayer, Lord, I don't know if I'm saved. If I'm not saved, save me now. Now here's the thing. 
I never experienced in that moment what I experienced the first time I ever said that prayer. And I remember one night, I was early teenage years, I kind of just was, it was actually at a service. And it was one of those services when um, you may have been saved for 40 years and you knew you were saved when you walked in the room. And by the time the preacher got done that day, everybody in the room thought they weren't saved. You know, you've been at those sermons, you know, everybody was terrible, nobody's going to heaven, you know. And so I was just worrying about it. And I heard the inaudible voice of God just say to me, Stop it. You're saved. You're done. You're mine. Since that day, not that there hadn't been doubts that come or that kind of phrase done kind of come into my mind occasionally, but since that day when it does, I say, no, I'm his. And what it means here is three things, really. You've got to know his story. You've got to know the gospel. That we were sinners, that Jesus came, that he lived a perfect life, that he died for our sins, that he rose again from the grave, and that he offers to us new life if we will accept him. You've got to know that. You've got to know your story about the day that you accepted the Lord, about how the Lord has changed you, about how he has made you into a new person. You've got to know your story, and then you've got to be willing to share it. Here's what I know. When I have seen people sharing their faith, they never doubt whether they're saved. I see several faces in here of people that went to Brazil last year. And one of my privileges of being in Brazil is walking around and hearing the gospel being presented 100, 200 times a day by people from this church. And here's the thing. In all of my conversations that week, nobody said, I just don't know if I'm saved. I just can't, I just can't think of whether I am or not. All the conversations were about how excited they were to share what God has done. You've got to know your history. Now, next week, we're going to move on to the shield and the sword and all of that. But this morning, I want us to take just a moment and think about where you are. I just want to ask you this simple question. Are you ready for whatever may come? If you walked out of this room, and I told you a couple of weeks ago, when we start talking about this, stuff's going to start happening. And I don't know if it's happened in your life, but it's happened in mine. When you walk out of this room and the attacks begin, are you ready? Do you have God's truth deep enough into your heart that you know truth from deception? Are you living an honest, open, transparent life before the Lord? Are you ready, confident in who Christ has called you to be and who He has made you if you follow Him, living that out, obeying Him? Is there an area of your life that God has called you to obey and you have yet to do it? Is there an area of your life that you need to confess to Him something that's gone wrong and you haven't done it? Are you ready? ready do you know his story do you know your story and are you willing to share it